Somebody asked in an interview the other day, I thought this was a really great question, uh, why is it so hard to stay present in daily life? And we looked at it and we discussed it a little bit and we you know, talked about a few different reasons. One, we just don't have the habit of being present. And to a certain extent, it's just a habit that we can develop of being here more often. It's really why retreats are so powerful. We generate that habit again and again and again. In daily life, uh, we get quite busy. Thoughts and emotions get active, stirred up, carry us away. And it's hard to focus on the present because the thoughts are, are quite active. But then another aspect of daily life is that we're involved in things that we care about and we get subject to a lot of ups and downs because of those things that we care about. Our work situation, our relationships with our co-workers, whether a project is coming together, whether our kids are home at the time that they said they were going to be, whether our partner is upset with us because we forgot to do something that particular day. So we meet a lot of uh, changing conditions in our daily life. And in a way you could say that as lay people there's kind of an inherent tension with Dharma practice. With, I think with monastics too, but for lay people it's even more exaggerated. We have to sustain uh, two tracks of intention in our daily life. One is that we have to take care of ourselves and our families. This is the part of the metaphrases, the fourth metaphrase that says something like, may I care for myself happily in this world. And it really refers to our outer life, our livelihood, our relationships with partners, with children, with parents, with friends. May all that go smoothly and easily. And as you know, that's kind of a full-time job all in itself. I mean, sometimes being a worker, a partner, and a parent is more than a full-time job. Much more. And then in addition, we're supposed to sustain this intention of Dharma practice, of coming back to the moment and nourishing mindfulness and developing metta. And you've also found that that's a full-time job. So it's as though going back in the world, we're assigned two full-time jobs, at least. You know, if you're a parent, maybe three. How do, we, how do we do this? You know, the good news is that over time it gets easier. It gets easier to combine those intentions of paying attention with the intention of carrying out our activities in the world. But there's also kind of a, a built-in pitfall. And that is the worldly activities themselves can be so involving and consuming that we lose track of the spiritual orientation. And this easily happens in outer life. You know, not only are the daily activities consuming, but they're also really seductive. They offer so many intriguing possibilities, don't they? All the interesting jobs that there are to do, you know, all the different projects that there could be to get involved with as a volunteer, all the different people that you could meet, ways you could take your work into new areas, different uh, activities you could uh, do with your kids, with your partners, richness you could bring to your parents in their older years. There are so many uh, rich possibilities and ways to spend our time in the outer world. And we can see as we get back into it 
that the forces of wanting, of desire, can lead us down a lot of these different tracks. And it really is easy to kind of forget to keep bringing in the spiritual focus, to keep coming back to awareness as a refuge, to metta as a direction, and compassion. So it's actually quite easy, I think, to get to go back in the world and to get lost in the pursuits of our daily life. One reason is that the, um, the desires in outer life are so manifold and so um, compelling that we may lose our sense of, of spiritual purpose. We may lose a, an orientation or a direction. This is a quote from Tony Parsons. Um, he's the new competitor to Eckhart Tolle in the Western self-realized category. Um, which you may have discovered is a, a blooming category these days. All these masters are sort of coming along who've never had any spiritual teacher but blossom spontaneously. Eckhart Tolle is one, and uh, Franz just turned me on to Tony Parsons, who's a British guy, born in 1933, and he had a spontaneous awakening when he was 20 years old. And he's now been teaching for the last few years. And this is a quote from, from Tony Parsons. Whatever I seek or think that I want, all of my desires are only a reflection of my longing to come home. Home is my original nature. It is right here, simply in what is. And I'll read something from Eckhart Tolle, the book The Power of Now, that says something similar. For those of you who don't know him, Eckhart Tolle is, I think, now 53 and he had a spontaneous awakening at age uh, 29. He's German-born but lives in Canada and is now teaching quite a bit in uh, the States. All negative emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who we are beyond name and form. I'll read that again because it's kind of dense. All negative emotions are modifications of one primordial, undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who we really are beyond name and form. What both these comments are pointing to is that we've lost touch with our true nature. You could call it awareness, you could call it emptiness, you could call it presence or being or God, if that language speaks to you. And having lost touch with this nature in this kind of fall from grace, there's a deep uh, sense of disappointment, of frustration, of abandonment, of incompleteness that befalls us as sentient beings, separated from our source. And because this sense of disappointment and loss is so burdensome, we escape from feeling it through all the outer activities of our lives. The spiritual path begins when we start drawing back that outer directed energy and realizing that the only thing that will truly satisfy us is returning to the source, returning to our true nature, our true home. So we're sort of conditioned by the society to look in, in worldly directions for happiness and satisfaction, but the message of the spiritual path is that those are actually a little bit misleading. 
that they're taking us away. When we put our real emphasis and intent in those directions, they're taking away from what will truly heal and bring us true uh, happiness and satisfaction. I think one of the best descriptions of the ways in which our life can uh, go off on worldly tracks is the sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, whose title is The Vicissitudes of Life. And it gives the a title for the talk this evening, which is called The Eight Worldly Conditions. This is the Buddha speaking. These eight worldly conditions, O monks, keep the world turning around. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions. What eight? Gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure. The Buddha goes on to talk about the fact that these eight conditions are something that we're all subject to. And what's interesting is that they're all impermanent. They're all changing. We can never land forever in any one of them, in the positive or the negative sides of them. But we continue to be exposed to the alternation of them. So if our attempt in life is to find happiness by landing in one of these positive states, that would mean gain, praise, pleasure, or success, and to always keep away from experiencing the negative states of loss, blame, uh, pain, and failure, we can't do it. It's just not possible because the conditions of the world are such that these are always going to be alternating. So as practitioners, our understanding in direction should be that we can't get away from these changing conditions of life, but we may be able to find a kind of equanimity amidst them. And so not to pin our hopes on always being on the positive side, because that doesn't happen for anyone, but to find a way, a place within ourselves, a strength of character and understanding, to be able to move more and more easily through the fluctuations of the ups and downs. So I want to talk a little about um, these four pairs and how they impact our lives. The first one that the Buddha mentioned is gain and loss. And it's so interesting living at this time um, in 2001 with the phenomenon of gain and loss because our society is so affluent. And here in the Bay Area, the impact of the computer industry is so big that stories of gain and loss are everywhere around us. I mean, I hear them all the time. I mentioned earlier in the retreat that I used to work at Microsoft and I I joined Microsoft in 1988. And the guy who hired me was a really great manager I just, I loved working for him. He was very supportive. He was a cool guy, and I thought he was a very, very good uh, manager. And uh, I found out after a little while that he had stock options. He'd been given stock options when he joined the company in the amount of 10,000. Now, 10,000 shares of Microsoft in 1988 weren't worth all that much. 
But over the, um, over the last 13 years, the stock has basically split by a factor of 72. So those today would be 720,000 shares of Microsoft stock, which even after the decline in the market is still worth a fair bit of money. So my boss, I guess it was probably early in uh, 1989, got passed over for a promotion. And the job was given to somebody who he didn't respect. It was given to another manager who he didn't think was very good. And he was told he had to report to this other manager. And this really ticked him off. He felt mistreated. He felt unacknowledged. He felt disrespected. He had a conflict with his new manager and one Friday afternoon, he wrote a resignation note and he walked out of the office. Leaving behind his 10,000 options on the table. Monday morning, he called his manager up and apologized and tried to withdraw the resignation, but uh, it wasn't accepted. His withdrawal of the resignation was not accepted. The manager said, no, I accepted your resignation. You're terminated from the company. So he basically left behind, with that one fit of temper, about $40 million. $40 million. Then in, you know, in the last year, the internet boom has gone bust, and all these CEOs of the young startups, a year ago at this time, were, were worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And today, a lot of those companies are bankrupt. So there are you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of people around the Bay Area who've seen their value go from hundreds of millions to zero. Some of them are now unemployed and looking for a job. And in the, you know, in the collapse of the market, a lot of people have lost money. Uh, a friend told me the other day that one of our mutual friends has lost about a million dollars over the last year. I never even knew the guy was wealthy. And now he's lost a million dollars. So these stories are all over the place. And I think it's actually one of the great unreported stories of the past year, that there's really a lot of suffering here. But people aren't comfortable talking about it because, what, you're going to pity somebody who lost a million dollars in the stock market? You know, they're not going to get much sympathy from outside. But another friend told me that he knows people who are worth $20 million now who feel poor because a year ago they were worth $40 million. So we're not going to feel too sorry for those people. So we may not hear about that story, but there is a lot of suffering through that loss of the last year. So the sutta goes on to talk about how to relate to uh, gain and loss in this way. These eight worldly conditions, monks, are encountered by an uninstructed worldling. That means someone who hasn't heard the teachings. And they're also encountered by an instructed noble disciple. What is the difference between an uninstructed noble disciple, between an instructed noble disciple and an uninstructed worldling? When an uninstructed worldling comes upon gain, he does not reflect upon it thus. This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, and subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. And when he comes upon loss, he does not reflect on it thus. This is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. He does not know it as it really is. With such a person, gain and loss 
keep his mind engrossed. When gain comes, he is elated, and when he meets with loss, he is dejected. But, O monks, when an instructed noble disciple comes upon gain, he reflects on it thus, This gain that has come to me is impermanent, bound up with suffering, and subject to change. And so he will reflect when loss comes upon him. He understands these things as they really are, and they do not engross his mind. Thus he will not be elated by gain or dejected by loss. Thus he will be freed from suffering, I declare. So the instruction of the Buddha in times of these alternating circumstances of all these eight uh, sets, really, is to reflect at the time whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether it's the positive part or the negative part of the cycle, to reflect that this too is impermanent and to not let our mind get engrossed or captured by the experience we're having then because it's also subject to change. It's said that the Buddha realized at one point, and I haven't found this in the suttas, but Ajahn Amaro mentioned it, so it must be there somewhere. It said the Buddha realized at one point that with his psychic powers, he could take the highest mountain in the Himalayas and turn it into gold. And then he reflected, should I do that? And then his next reflection was, there's no end to the greed for gold. And so he didn't even bother. He didn't see the point in doing that. There's a Tibetan definition of renunciation that I really like. They say, renunciation means to accept what comes into our life and to let go of what goes out. To accept what comes and to let go of what goes. And this is the natural wisdom that is equanimous or balanced with the changing conditions of life. This is again from the Buddha on the subject of gain and loss. Insignificant, O monks, is the loss of wealth and fame. The loss of wisdom is the greatest loss. Insignificant, O monks, is the increase of wealth and fame. The increase of wisdom is the greatest gain. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will grow in the increase of wisdom. So in our daily lives, We do have the responsibility to look after gain and loss, to look after income, to support ourselves, our partners, our children, our parents, our relatives. Can we do it with a mind that uh, keeps it to the practicalities, to keep an eye on what we need and not to be caught in putting a lot of energy into getting more than we need so that we... uh, look after this tendency to greed. We look after the tendency to always wanting more than we have. Now in meditation practice, we can also get involved in worrying about gain and loss. When you have a really good sitting and the concentration is strong, there can be a really great sense of gain. Oh, I've gotten a lot of concentration up to this point in the retreat. And the sitting can feel really calm and there can be a sense of ownership and pride about that accumulation. But concentration is one of the really variable factors in meditation practice, as you probably noticed. It comes together, it's strong, and you can do absolutely nothing wrong 
can be doing your practice fully and carefully and the concentration just decays. It's one of those factors that's really out of our control. So again, when it goes, we may get unhappy and think, oh, I've blown it. But it's just the decaying of the factor of concentration. As we continue with a steady application of mindfulness, it will build back up. So concentration really manifests through the retreat, these cycles of gain and loss. And so do the experiences of calm, just like that. Mindfulness tends to be much steadier in development. Mindfulness being the capacity of the mind to know its experience. This seems to grow little by little by little, but more, more I, as I see it, more steadily through our practice. And I feel that the kind of gain in mindfulness that you develop over a retreat doesn't entirely desert you when you leave. I think it's one of the things that carries over um, most powerfully. The concentration will probably go, sorry to say. Most of you know that's going to go fairly soon. But the mindfulness is, is much more steady. The second of the pairs is praise and blame. And I used to think that um, once one reached a certain level of um, togetherness, integration in one's life, one was somehow free from blame. But the Buddha actually said somewhere in the suttas that there's no one who is not subject to blame. And looking back on his own life, after his awakening, he got this in spades. I mean, you'd think that somebody whose heart was kind and whose actions were thoughtful might possibly be exempt, but it wasn't the case. Uh, He went places, people were jealous of him. Different teachers in different schools were threatened by him. So people spread lies about him. Um, They defamed him. They tried to uh, keep him from being respected or cared for in different places that he went. There's a very interesting story about one of his bhikkhus, a bhikkhu named Puna. And Puna had come from a land on the west coast of India, and he wanted to go back to that land uh, in order to practice. He didn't like the area where the Buddha was teaching, so he wanted to go back to the west coast, to this land called Sunaparanta. And the Buddha said, um, but Puna, the people of Sunaparatna are wild and rough. If they abuse and revile you, what will you think about that? In other words, if you come upon this kind of blame in this land of wild and rough people, what are you going to do about it? And Puna replied, Venerable Sir, if the people of Sunaparatna abuse and revile me, then I will think, these people are excellent, truly excellent, in that they do not give me a blow with the fist. And so the Buddha says, but Puna, what if they do give you a blow with the fist? What will you think about that? Oh, well, if they give me a blow with the fist, then I will think, these people are excellent, truly excellent, in that they do not give me a blow with a clod, lump of dirt. And and of course, the Buddha replies, but what if they do give you a blow with a clod? And Puna replies, well, then I will think, these people are excellent truly excellent in that they do not stab me with a knife. Well, what if they do stab you with a knife? Well, then I will think these people are excellent, truly excellent, in that they do not take my life with a sharp knife. 
This is equanimity. <laughs> this, is, this is being strong in the face of praise and blame. Um, we have a kind of modern day example in the figure of Bill Clinton. I mean, he's somebody who I think could say something like that and, uh, and kind of mean it. I don't know if you saw this news item. I think it came before the retreat started. Somebody, uh, he was at a meeting, I think, in Europe, and a protester who was concerned about globalization threw an egg at him. And Clinton said, young people ought to get angry. They should have somebody to get angry at. Equanimity. Praise and blame is also kind of an integral part of um, Dharma teaching. Um, it kind of keeps the job juicy, so it always provides interest. If somebody comes up to me after a Dharma talk and says, um, can I give you some feedback? <laughs> then um, I know I'm in trouble. One of the... Um, Interesting stages here at Spirit Rock is the Monday night class that Jack Cornfield leads, and probably a lot of you have, have seen that and may have come into Spirit Rock through that class. Um, teaching up here is like a heaven realm because you all have so much commitment and dedication to the practice. Um, you're really a wonderful you know, group to work with. The Monday night people <laughs> are often new to Spirit Rock new to spiritual practice and don't have the kind of commitment that people on eight-day retreats have, always. There are a lot of really committed people in the Monday night group, but there it's also the place that new people meet Spirit Rock. So there are people with all sorts of backgrounds. And you do meet some interesting people in the Monday night. So I actually uh, took over Monday night for about six months a few years ago when Jack was away. And I was a fairly green Dharma teacher at the time, and looking back, I wonder how I ever had the nerve to do that. It was kind of like being president of the Jack Cornfield fan club, you know, when Jack Cornfield was away. But um, I did learn a lot from doing it. So I kept Jack's schedule. And we sit, then we have a break, and then we have a talk, and then questions. So we got to the break. We'd been sitting for about 45 minutes. I announced a break. And as soon as I announced the break, I started to go through my papers and get my talk ready. And there were about 200 people there that night. And I was still pretty nervous, being you know, fairly new to that scene. And this guy comes up to me, and he says, um, I'm really angry. He said, I'm really angry about the way you manage the time here. He said, would you like me to go into it now with you? <laughs> or uh, shall I write you a letter? <laughs> so I looked at the 200 people and I looked at my notes and I said, why don't you write me a letter? <laughs> and he said, okay, and he started to walk away. And then he turned around and he said, but if you don't answer it, I'm going to be really angry. <laughs> So I was glad that he didn't stab me with a sharp knife. <laughs> so in my early years, I, I really resisted that part of Dharma teaching. I really didn't want those experiences. I mean, I thought it, I shouldn't be having to have them. But um, 
I've actually changed my view on it. And Ajahn Sumedho has been helpful to me in this regard. He, um, as a young monk, I mentioned he's been in robes for 35 years. And when he was a young monk, he took to the practice really easily, and he was very happy and contented on his own. He was with Ajahn Chah for some years, and what he really wanted to do was to go off to the forest and just meditate. He just wanted to find a peaceful place and live in a small hut and be really, really quiet on his own. But Ajahn Chah, for various reasons, kept pushing Sumedho into community life. And when Sumedho had been a monk only eight years, he was made abbot of the first Western monastery in Thailand called Wat Bananachat, which is still operating. They've had a series of abbots over the years, and it's still introducing a lot of Westerners to the practice. And he kept grumbling and thinking, only eight years. I've only been a monk eight years, and I have to be an abbot. Cha got 20 years of practice before he had to be an abbot. Now he's making me be a monk at eight years. And then it wasn't so many years later that Ajahn Chah sent uh, Sumedho to England to establish a Western monastery there. And he had to live in the city of London for two years and then start a whole community, become abbot. And now there's a huge and thriving network of monasteries in England and branch monasteries around the world that Ajahn Sumedho has launched. Um, So he's the head of a very, very big community And in community life, as you know, uh, it's not always easy. The number of problems in a community basically goes up exponentially with the number of people. So the bigger the community got, the more difficult it was. And he received a lot of blame and criticism from his community. The women uh, were upset that they weren't being treated equally. They didn't have the same opportunities as monks. The young monks who were coming up and starting to feel their own power kind of uh, rebelled against him as the father figure and the authority figure. And different people just didn't like the way he was managing different parts of the community. So he really got blasted. And he talks about this quite openly. This is not a private, this is not private news. And he said when it first started to happen to him, he got very shaken with it. He just, he really couldn't take the criticism. But over time, he started to use it as Dharma practice. And he started to look at it from the point of view of what Carol was talking about uh, last night, of personality view, or two nights ago, personality view. Seeing how the criticisms would bring up different self-images that he held about himself, and how he had gotten fixated on being seen a particular way, and that didn't have to be him. He realized that he couldn't make his personality perfect, but nobody can, but he found his perfection in this uh, Buddha knowing, this Buddha mind. So he would take refuge in that and see the personality problems as coming and going. He talked about this quite a lot. So he said recently that um, now he's really glad that he didn't get to be a hermit. He's actually really glad that Ajahn Chah pushed him into community life because otherwise he would never have faced his fear of people. And I hear, I hear some other people say this, that they're actually glad now to encounter difficulties in their practice because it shows an area where they're still holding, where they're still attached. And without the conflict that brings up that difficulty, these areas will never get illuminated. But when they get illuminated through the suffering of attachment, then we have a possibility to understand them 
and come to greater freedom. So that's why this aspect of blame can actually be uh, very helpful in practice and growthful. So um, I don't necessarily invite you all, but uh, if you do need to, I don't mind. Dalai Lama was here last summer, and he talked about this also. Uh, actually, uh, Surya Das, who's a Western teacher in the Tibetan tradition, asked him a question. He said, there's a lot of popularization of Buddhism going on these days, and it runs the risk of watering down the teachings or trivializing them. And it said, um, Your Holiness, you're the greatest popularizer of us all. So what do you make of this? You know, basically, what do you think about your role in popularizing Buddhism? And the Dalai Lama was quiet for a minute. This was all taking place in this hall, by the way. It's a group of about 225 uh, teachers at a conference. And this is what he replied. Some people you see uh, call me a living Buddha. Some people call me God King. He said, no, I am not. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. Simple Buddhist monk. But other people call me a counter-revolutionary. Or they call me a wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, when that happens, I look back at my own intention. And if my own intention is good, I don't care what other people say. If they perceive a different way, that's their problem. It's not up to me. If my intention is good, then I don't care. And he said that really strongly, I don't care. That's an incredible strength. And I I was really moved when he said that, at this combination of the responsibility that he feels, being the main voice for Tibetan culture in the world today, the praise and blame that come his way. He has huge extremes of praise and blame and his own inner strength to hold that, that range, to look back to his own intention. So I think that's helpful for us. When we get criticism, can we look at our own intention? And was there something off in our action? Was there a thoughtlessness or an intent to hurt or a negligence or something like that? And if there was, then can we just acknowledge that and apologize? And if there wasn't, can we trust in that? Can we trust that the criticism really isn't appropriate, isn't justified, and be confident in our own understanding, our own take of it, our own honesty? Because I think for me the problem with criticism is that I feel like if I'm wrong, if I've done something wrong, I'm kind of um, devastated as a person. I I become a bad person, like a totally bad person if I've offended somebody or done something that was off. And of course, that's unrealistic. We're all going to mess up now and then. And it's actually fine to mess up. But not to have the idea that it invalidates us as a person. We're doing the best we can, and, you know, I made a mistake. That's okay. So to be able to have the kind of largeness of heart to accept that. And that that has come from me just with more and more self-acceptance. The more that I think that overall, I'm trying to do my best, and trusting in that, then I can allow imperfection to come in. It's okay. Now the other side is praise. How do we relate with praise? 
And you know, in a lot of cases, this is actually harder to let in than blame. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you've you know, done something in a group, you know, one person might come up and say, wow, that was great, I really appreciated your comment. And somebody else, somebody else will come up and say, I thought that was you know, really the worst comment of the whole thing. I was very offended by what you said. Which one sticks in your mind longer? <laughs> the praise just sort of comes in and out. And the blame really tends to hang around for a while. So with praise also, take a look and see if you can take in what's being said. Because often what's being said, the real subtext of it is, I love you, or I dig you, or I care about you. Something like that. Often praise is just kind of a way of touching another person and expressing affection. And so... Uh, when I was younger, I think I took praise in a kind of narcissistic way. And I'd take it in and I'd kind of um, inflate my ego. You know, I'd sort of pump up myself with it. But now I just kind of try to tune into the kindness of what's being offered and the sense of affection that's being exchanged. And that just feels wholesome. And it doesn't feel like there's a need for a whole lot of clinging around that piece of it. And then when we are offering feedback to somebody else, constructive criticism, of course, the Buddha had some uh, really clear guidelines for that that I, I try to keep in mind. He said, one who is about to admonish another should realize within themselves five qualities before doing so. At the right time will I speak. Gently will I speak. Truthfully, not with exaggeration, will I speak. To their benefit will I speak, not to their harm. And kindly will I speak, not in anger. These are beautiful guidelines for saying what sometimes needs to be said, but doing it with a real spirit of care and mutual benefit, mutual interest. The next of the pairs is pleasure and pain. And these also alternate all the time in life, as you see so clearly in meditation retreat. Even for the Buddha, these alternations didn't go away. The Buddha had back pain. You can find this in the suttas. He'll say, uh, Moggallana, one of his two chief disciples, you give the Dhamma talk tonight. My back is aching. I'm going to go lie down. And now they'll describe him going off to one side and lying down while Moggallana gives the talk. Um, his cousin, Devadatta, tried to kill him, rolled a rock down a hill uh, trying to kill the Buddha. Someone sent an enraged elephant after him, which he, it's said that he caused to halt with the force of his loving kindness. And he died actually from eating a poisoned meal. It's not any suggestion that it was poisoned purposely in order to kill him, but maybe the food had gone off or it was bad or something. He died from that. So this alternation of pleasure and pain uh, will come all the time. In the ascetic traditions, in the Thai forest tradition, there's often an emphasis that the monastics try to reduce the pleasure in their life in order not to develop clinging. Um, And Ajahn Chah at his monastery used to take all the beautiful Thai food that was brought by the lay people to feed the monks 
dump it into one bowl, stir it all around, and then serve it out. So you'd get a curry mixed with a banana, mixed with a dessert, and that would be glopped into the bowls of all the monks and nuns. And Sumedho said it tasted awful. He said, "Um, I can't eat this food any longer. I can't bear this any longer. And then he found a way to bear it longer. Um, where I was practicing at Wat Swan Mok, Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery, it was a fantastic setting. We were given a huge degree of independence and self-reliance, and I think basically he trusted us. But because it was so comfortable, they made the food terrible. Because otherwise it would have been too attractive for people to just come down and hang out and have a cushy life for a long time. So the food there was awful. But everything else about the monastery was fantastic. This is not an ascetic tradition, as you may have noticed. We actually refer to this style of practice as the upper middle way. (laughs) We trust that you'll find enough pain from other sources in your practice. The last of the pairs is called success and failure. Sometimes this couplet is um, put as fame and disrepute. Sometimes it's translated success as failure. I want to talk about success and failure because I think it's a little broader for us. You know, we often look at our lives this way around areas that we're responsible for. We look at our job situation, we look at our relationship, we look at our parenting or taking care of our, our own parents. And in all these these areas, clearly, success is helpful. You know, doing a good job in all these areas is really, really a good thing. We need to provide for our families. We need to raise our kids in a loving way. We want to have a partnership, an intimate partnership, that has uh, kindness as its foundation and not, not conflict. So there's a certain amount of self-confidence that comes when we bring a level of success into these areas. And again, this ties into the fourth of the metaphrases, being able to look after ourselves happily. This is important. It's self-confidence, it's not pride. We don't get pumped up about it, but we reassure ourselves that we can uh, take care of ourselves well in this world. And it's a little bit similar in meditation. We want to find a way that our meditation goes reasonably well, so that over the long term, we're seeing that our difficult emotional states and reactions are declining rather than increasing. I think this is kind of the best um, long-term gauge for our practice, that the difficult emotions are going down, not going up. One of my teachers actually said, if you practice over a few years and these difficult emotions aren't going down, you're wasting your time with your Dharma practice, and you might as well take a break, have a holiday, do something different. But for the most part, this is a good gauge. But beyond that broad generality, which really takes some years to see, we can get really concerned with too much detail of success and failure in a meditation retreat. And then it turns into striving. We get very goal-oriented, and we're near-term goal-oriented. I was practicing some years ago, quite some years ago, 
in a system of meditation where certain experiences are considered a standard sequence of unfolding. And I knew a little bit about this sequence, and I knew my teachers would be very happy if I came in and described one of these experiences. So I was really putting myself under a lot of pressure to have one of these experiences. And as you know, you can't force experience in meditation. You know, I hadn't really learned that yet. I was still trying. So I, I kind of tied myself up in knots, trying to make certain things happen in my meditation. I went in for an interview with my teacher and um, reported an experience I'd had, and he said, you're not very deep. (laughs) He said, I could tell by the way you walked in the room, you're not very deep. So-and-so is much deeper. (laughs) And he named a friend of mine who was practicing on that same retreat. They're much deeper than you are. (laughs) This didn't exactly raise my motivation level (laughs) in the retreat. So I think if we hold a a very long-term view of practice, then we don't get so caught up in short-term success and failure. Because when we do and we fall into striving, we can really make ourselves tense. And if we're tense, then the real heart of the meditation, qualities like freedom and relaxation and compassion and loving-kindness and even wisdom, don't have a chance to flower those things flower from letting go, not from striving. So have the sense that you really can just keep your orientation toward this moment, not try to create some special experience here and now, and trust that the letting go and the softening, the gentleness and the relaxation will allow the Dharma to unfold you rather than you having to push the Dharma. That way it will unfold beautifully in the beginning, it'll unfold beautifully in the middle, it'll unfold beautifully in the end. Ajahn Chah said, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that for a practitioner, success and failure are of equal value. I love this. Because when we really take that to heart, we realize we can learn from our successes, we can learn from our failures. And it gives a kind of trust and fearlessness about our life. We're not so afraid to make a new step and maybe get off course, because if we are, we can learn from that too. This kind of leads into an area I want to explore a little bit, um, which is what success means in kind of work and relationship. Often success means, I'd say has meant for me, getting my way. I have an idea of something I want to have happen in an organization or in a relationship, and I'll try to direct things so it unfolds in that way. As an example, I was, uh, two years ago, I guess, I was president of the board here at Spirit Rock. I did that for a year. I'd been on the board for a few years, and then for one year, I was the president. And I felt a new burden when I became president of the board um, because I felt all of a sudden I was kind of responsible for the organization. And I felt responsible for what the organization decided to do. And so I felt as president, I had to get the rest of the board to make the right decision. Right being the way I thought it should go. And partly this was just coming out of personal involvement, my own attachment, and partly it was really trying to 
take good care of the organization and have it unfold in the way that I thought was most skillful. So there was an interested and a disinterested component to it. But I really um, felt that if I didn't control the organization in that way, I was letting it down. And I just remember one of the issues that came up at that time, we were looking for a director. And we met Evan, who's our current general manager, who's, I think, a really great director. And he happened to be the first candidate we met. So we hadn't interviewed any other people. We met Evan, and I really liked him right off the bat. And I wanted to hire him without interviewing anybody else because he had another job offer pending. And uh, Sally was also in the group involved, and we both agreed. But we couldn't convince anybody else to do that. So we tried, you know, we struggled, you know, we may have threatened and bullied a little bit, <laughs> and we couldn't get it to happen. So, we, you know, we gave up, and uh, Evan took the other job. We went on a long search for a director and hired somebody else. And then um, about a year ago, we had another vacancy. Evan came back in the picture, went through the process, and he got hired. Um, it would have been great if we could have hired him, you know, a year earlier, perhaps, but this is the way it unfolded. So I was, you know, I got quite frustrated at that at points. And I realized from that I couldn't control the board. I have enough trouble controlling my mind, much less the mind of 15 other people. And there's often in organizational life this, this wish to have our uh, decision go, but it's something that's out of our control. In relationship, the same way. We may want it to go a certain way, but our partner might not want it that way. So, this is a quote from the Bhagavad Gita. This is Krishna speaking. The way to freedom in this world is to act without attachment to the fruits of your action. To act without attachment to the fruits of your action. Now, this seemed really idealistic to me for a long time, but the more I started working with it, the more it became really practical to me. And I take it now as my direction for acting in the world without so much concern about success or failure. And the way that it comes across for me is I start to realize the limits of my control. I can't control 15 other people's minds. I can influence them. And so what I try to do is to put things as clearly and as wisely and as lightly as I can, because then I think it has the best chance of being heard. If I put things in a heavy way, there's going to be resistance. So one of the ways that I check my own attachment is, can I be light with this idea, with this proposal, with what I'm trying to have accomplished? And if I see I can't be light with it, that's a sign of my own attachment. But if I can be light with it and put it clearly and my own emotions aren't disturbing the delivery, then it has the best possible chance of being received in a favorable way by the people who are listening. And then I realize that's all I can do. I can put it out clearly and lightly and then it's out of my hands. And then I have to surrender to how everybody else sees it. This has been a fantastic learning for me in kind of getting along more easily in groups, relationship with other people. 
I can't control the outcome. I can only put in my best and cleanest effort. This is also really true of meditation practice. If you're with the breath in order to get concentrated, you have an ulterior motive, it's not going to work. If you're with the breath in a pure and light and clean way, with no ulterior motive, you'll get concentrated. So check your attachment in being with the breath or being with a meditation object. So with this um, looking at these four kinds of outcomes of gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure, coming to a clearer relationship is really a way of purifying our motivation as we act and live in the world. And as our motivation becomes purified just to do what's right from loving kindness, from wisdom and compassion, then we trust that the outcome will take care of itself, will take care of us. So we just find lighter and lighter ways to do the things that we're already doing. Ajahn Jamnian was here about a year ago and said that he's a, he's a Thai teacher, great master of loving-kindness and vipassana. And he said that in his monastery, he sees people from the moment he gets up until the moment he goes to bed. He's receiving visitors. Lay people come and want to consult with him. Monks come to see him to talk about their practice. Nuns come to see him. Monks come to talk about running the monastery. And he says he never gets tired. He can be with people all day long and he never gets tired. And we said, how, how can you do that? And he said, I do it because all the time I'm speaking and interacting, I'm resting in emptiness. I rest in emptiness the whole time and I never get tired. He said, I tell my monks to do this, but they can't do it. <laughs> he said, they keep grasping at the things that come by, at the people, at the things that are happening. But I can rest in emptiness. That is a fantastic talent. And what that really says to me is that he cares more about this place of freedom that he abides in than he cares about the passing, changing show of gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure. And I think when we also care more about our freedom than the passing show, when we care more about awareness and attention than we do about outcomes, we will also be resting in emptiness, just like Ajahn Jamnian. This is really why renunciation is such an important factor on the path. Renunciation doesn't mean we become a monk or nun and we put everything away. It means that we see things in the right priority. We see that the uh, practice of freedom is the greatest contribution we can make for our own life and the well-being of the world. We trust that the right action will come from that place of freedom, so we try not to get too anxious about it. Then our motivation from being in the world can shift from always trying to accumulate the positive aspects of this cycle, always trying to accumulate gain, praise, pleasure, success, 
to being in the world from a place of having renounced outcome. And our fundamental reason for being there can more become compassion. Compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. Just present, kind of hanging out, ready to purify our own hearts, deepen our own freedom, and offer that freedom to others. I'll just close with a quotation from the Sutta Nipata. Someone asked the Buddha, what is the greatest blessing? And he answered in a few different ways, and this is one of the ways that he answered. When one's mind is sorrowless, stainless, and secure in the deathless, and one is not disturbed when touched by life's vicissitudes, this is the greatest blessing. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 27, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.